me say a prayer for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that you are a God who is with us. I pray that our hearts would be open, our minds would be turned to you, that as we learn about Jesus Christ, Father, we would have a new life, a new courage, a new strength to be the men and women you've created us to be. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered what it really takes to be great? So if you read anything about greatness, you're always going to find lots of information about working hard and passion and focus, motivation, determination, grit, lots of things about perseverance, and they're all right. None of these things are wrong, but being truly great, right, doesn't happen without hard work and time and effort. It's interesting because um, a man named Francis Ambrosia was a university professor at Georgetown, and he said there's two ways of really thinking about a meaningful life. One is the hero, and the other is the saint. He said the hero overcame obstacles to reach their full potential. They would work to receive status and honor and recognition and the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. That kind of defines the life of a hero. And it had all of these wonderful qualities like courage and excellence and persistence and overcoming obstacles and self-discipline and self-mastery. And he said, on the other side, the way of the saint, the saint doesn't try to grab their worth through an endless race of achievement, but receives worth by grace. They don't choose as an ultimate value self-fulfillment, but self-giving love. They don't seek glory for themselves, but give glory to a glorious God. They don't impose their will, but surrender it to a good God. And so when you read through history, it's interesting because you hear these stories, the great stories. You find the heroes and the saints and lines up with how we talk about the idea of greatness. Better than others somehow, or more accomplished, or more successful, or there's some level of superiority in what they've done. And on the surface, there's nothing wrong with any of these things, right? The idea of competition and working to be great in themselves are not bad or even dangerous thing. Like power. Power in itself isn't bad or good. The question is, how is power used? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves with greatness. When we look at ourselves and others, what is the real goal of greatness? What's the goal in trying to lead a great life? Is it for us about comparison or hierarchy or measurement or identity? Or what does it mean to truly live a great life? When Jesus talked about the idea of greatness, he actually gave us a very surprising way to think about it. And in Mark chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are traveling back to Capernaum, and on the way, his disciples start arguing, which is, you know, our human nature. And of course, Jesus, knowing they're arguing, and he stops them and he asks them what they're arguing about. And this is what it says in chapter 9, verse 34 and 35. They kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be last, the very last, and the servant of all. So here are the disciples who've been with Jesus. It's interesting because Mark has two very distinct parts of it, the beginning part and then the second. And we find this hinge point right in the middle. And up to this point, they believe, they've been learning, Jesus really is the King and the Christ and the Messiah. They've seen his greatness. They've seen all these incredible, amazing things that he could do. But now Jesus is going to take what they believe and shift what their idea of greatness looks like. And I love the disciples' reaction because, like, it's so us and it's so human. Like, okay, great, Jesus is bringing in this new kingdom. He's going to be the leader of it all. He's the greatest. That's awesome. But then, like, who's next, right? Like, after Jesus and he's first, then, like, who comes after that? Like, who's number two? Who's number three? Like, of all the people that are around him that are following, like, who then is the greatest? And 
who's going to have power after him and who's going to have the position and who's going to rule alongside of him. And Jesus so interestingly leans into this moment to teach us all something incredibly valuable. But what's important is Jesus doesn't yell at his disciples. He doesn't like be like, guys, come on. Like we've talked about this here. Like it's not about this. Like he doesn't get frustrated and be like, really, this is what you're arguing about here. He doesn't even say there's anything wrong with the desire that they have to be great. He just gives a new way of defining greatness and what it means to truly live a great life. And he gives this one simple sentence. He says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, the servant of all. Now, this is radical because think about the time period that the disciples that Jesus are living in right here. Every position of power they had seen was used power over other people. It was power to oppress, and they were overruled by the Romans, and their rights weren't their rights, and they were limited, and there was brutality, and there was violence. And even when you moved away from that to the religious leaders of the day, it was all about pomp and circumstance and who knew who and how you looked in front of other people. And so when they looked at every example of power in their time, it was power used to squash power used to lord over other people like look at how great i am and how ungreat you are it was about authority and position and it left people feeling worn down and beaten down and jesus stops in this moment and he's like this is not how it's going to be with us in this kingdom in this world what we're doing right now it's not about position and power and squashing people we're not going to use fear and cruelty we're not going to use our positions to get what we want at the expense of other people power is going to look dramatically different in the kingdom that christ is building greatness isn't found in position it's not found in manipulating other people or getting what you want at the expense of other people Jesus said, let me show you who the greatest are, those who serve. And then he went on to use his life as an example of this idea. He said, a great life isn't defined by what we get, but what we give. It's defined by service. It's using power driven by empathy and service to people around us. He said, if you really want to talk about greatness, take position out of the equation. It's not about hierarchy. It's not about position. It's not about who has more power and who authority. It's all about service. Now, this is interesting because right here we have in Mark, right before this happens, Jesus has explained to his disciples, right? They know he's the king, the Messiah. They've been waiting for him. He's powerful. He's great. But what kind of a king did they expect him to be? Right before this happens, Jesus tells his friends, the son of man would be delivered into the hands of men. He would be killed and after three days rise again. And they didn't understand it. Like, okay, Jesus, that sounds terrible, right? Like, that's miserable, no fun, but who's going to be great, right? Like, they still went back to their understanding of what greatness was. And Jesus wants them to see, here's what we're blind to. Here's what we're missing when we think about it. It's not about getting this a lot of power in this time period and overthrowing a government and a nation. And it's not about Jerusalem getting more power. In fact, it's not even about winning at all. He'd go on to tell his friends, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's interesting because one study guide said this, if the kingdom was political, then those closest to Jesus would share more of his political power. That's what the disciples were thinking. They'd get more power, more position, more clout in the world. 
But if the kingdom is a movement of suffering and service, then those closest to Jesus would share more of his rejection and humbling. Since they don't see how dying on a cross could lead to salvation and power, they don't even see how humility and service can lead to strength and greatness. They don't see how weakness and submission could ever lead to increased influence, authority, and power. And so Jesus comes to disrupt and surprise what every person thought the definition of being great was at this time. He didn't come for people to serve him, right? You serve kings. You bow down to kings. Jesus came into the world to serve us. He received nothing from us but gave everything to us that in him, that through him, we might know grace, love, and life. He shared the greatest act of service by redeeming sinners through his own death. He showed the greatest act of service by going to the cross and dying in our place. There's no one greater than Jesus. I mean, if we're doing positional hierarchy here, Christ is at the top. And yet he took the position of a servant. The king came into the world and died the death of a criminal. Dane Ortland, in his book, Surprised by Jesus, he said, For the great and wonderful surprise of Jesus' mission is that the one person who ever truly deserved to be exonerated at the end of his life allowed himself to be indicted so that you and I can be exonerated at no cost to ourselves. The king took a criminal's punishment. The lion was treated like a lamb. A battered and bloodied Messiah, so out of sync with what hopeful Jews anticipated in their coming king, and with what you and I expect in a Savior, is at the very heart of Mark's gospel. No matter, he says, what happens economically or politically or in our jobs, health, or relationships, in the days ahead, the most fundamental reality of our existence stands, unchanged, unmoving, gloriously open, inviting nothing more than a yes. For Jesus, deserving a yes, received a no, so that we, deserving a no, can receive a yes. The gospel of grace is not about what we can do for God, but what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. All we bring is our need. All we bring is our blindness. Isn't that, That's the surprising news of Jesus Christ. The disciples have started to see Jesus as the king, the long-awaited Messiah. They've seen the amazing, incredible things that he can do. Peter has this moment of clarity, and he says, You are Jesus, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. But Jesus didn't come into the world the way they thought he would, acquiring power and greatness and accolades. He came to suffer and die, laying down his life for us. He is—he came— and he was rejected. He was not the kind of king anybody expected, but this is what's so powerful of the heart of the gospel. He is the king each and every one of us needs. He was cursed that we might be redeemed. And Christ shows power through love, greatness through service, compassion through pain, forgiveness through suffering. And Jesus takes everything we think about greatness and service and turns it all the way around. We see one thing, things one way, right? We have our world, our history, our context, our culture, and we see things so clearly as this way. But Christ says, what if there's a whole other way you haven't even considered? We're like, yeah, but Jesus, this way, these are how things go. And Jesus says, let me open your eyes and give you a whole new vision for how life is supposed to work. 
we think we know the right traits, the best characteristics, and Christ just explodes into our lives with a whole new list. And then if these first couple of verses aren't surprising enough, Jesus takes it a step further. Look at what he says in verse 36. He took a little child whom he'd placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So Jesus, in the midst of redefining greatness and what it looks like and the idea of service and first being last and last being first, now he takes a child and holds up this little child as an example. Now, we have to think, like, why would Jesus use this child? Okay, first of all, children have no status, right? There's no position of power in a child. Actually, even in this time period, it was way worse. The Greek and Latin, the words they used for children meant not speaking as in they lacked dignity of reason. They were seen as dependent, defenseless, fragile, vulnerable, at risk, right? So children have no status, but there's also nothing that a child can do for you, only what you do for a child. So you have all of these years where a child is fully dependent on you, right? They just need to be taken care of. They need to be fed and changed and coddled and loved and treasured, but they can't actually do any work for you, right? Like, you don't see babies going around cleaning the house or going groceries or taking care of errands. There's only what you can do for the child. And yet Jesus holds up this child and says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome me, but the one who sent me. And it's so powerful when we look at this. The one who is the greatest, the biggest, the highest up of all, Jesus Christ became little. He became weak by coming into the world as a baby. And Jesus looked out, and as he welcomed people into his kingdom, into what he was doing, he didn't welcome only the people in the position of power. He didn't go to the temple and round up the most religious people to be on his team. He didn't go seek out the most popular or the most wealthy or the most influential. Jesus pulled, pulled everyday people like you and I. He picked the weak and the helpless and the needy, those who are on the outside or overlooked, everyday blue-collar people just trying to get by. And that's so powerful when we think about who Christ welcomes into his circle of influence. Because he came to rescue us and save us because we are helpless and needy. But it, that, that's a hard thing to admit, right? Our pride bristles a little bit when we say those words. Like, none of us want to admit, like, no, 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 we're strong, we're competent, we're powerful, we have this thing together, we don't need help, right? Our pride gets all scratchy, like, no, 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 I'm not helpless, I'm, I'm a hard worker, I can figure this out, right? But let's be honest, before the throne of Jesus Christ, I'm helpless and I'm needy. That's the only prerequisite. There's no work that I have to get done to come to Christ. There's no long list of all the good deeds that I have to bring to him. I just have to admit, I need help. <laughs> I have to admit my vision is wrong and I see things not the right way. I need help that only he can give. There's nothing we can do for God, nothing. And yet he's done everything for us. God doesn't need me, but we need him desperately. Christ treats us with dignity and value, not out of any standard or position or hierarchy that we can bring to him, but out of his great love that we know through Jesus Christ. Timothy Keller said, when God showed up in Christ Jesus, 
He was not a pillar of fire, not a tornado, but a baby. There's nothing like a baby. Even young children have their own agenda and can run from you. Have you ever tried to pick up a toddler that wants nothing to do with you? But little babies, they can be picked up and hugged and kissed, and they're open to it. They cling to you. Why would God come in the form of a baby rather than a firestorm or a whirlwind? Because this time he has come not to bring judgment, but to bear it, to pay the penalty for our sins, to take away the barrier between humanity and God so we can be together. Jesus is God with us. And you see how he just reverses the whole order of things. He came into this world, all the glory, all the splendor, all the majesty, the power of God. And he took the form not of a pillar of fire, not a tornado, not a conquering army, but a baby. He turned everything we thought we know upside down. The first will be last. Greatness is found in service. Strength is in humility. Nobody in this time period used the word humility as a strong word. It, it was looked down upon. It was considered weak, but Jesus shows us the strength that is found in humility. He came not to win. Listen, he lost on purpose that we might win and we might be saved. He gave his life on a cross. He surrendered willingly, freely. It was not taken from him. He gave it up willingly that we might live. Christ shows compassion and gentleness to all who have missed it. He calls up those who would never be chosen to rise up and lead with him. The king took the position of a servant. The Lord, the Lord of lords, he came to serve. And one author said it this way, one of the most impressive aspects of Jesus is how he was unimpressed. He was impressed by unimpressive people. Titles are only opportunities to serve. The crucifixion was the ultimate shame. Jesus was crucified for his followers. This means either he wasn't as great as they thought he was, or the whole notion of greatness itself would have to be redefined. It would have to become cruciform, reshaped by the cross. He said the way of the hero was touched by the way of the saint. Christ came in and lived the greatest life that had ever been lived, and yet he suffered and died on our behalf. Our path to greatness, it's not found in any of the hard work that we do. It's found in the work that Christ already did on our behalf when he gave his life on the cross. We don't have to work our way to salvation. We receive it. We don't save ourselves. Only Christ can do that. And in the long road of life, we don't even do the work to keep ourselves saved. He's with us, strengthening us, encouraging us, giving us all that we need to persist and grow in the life of faith. The strength we need to persevere, the grit we need to get through this day, this time, this phase of life that we are in, he's freely and generously given to us all that we need. We don't toil and struggle in vain. We don't work endlessly hour after hour, day after day without purpose. Christ did the greatest work that ever need to be done. The price has been paid in full. He didn't leave anything unfinished. And he calls on us. Do you have the eyes to see this new life, this new vision for who he's created us to be and what a great life truly is? Look, Christ humbled himself to the cross. 
but he didn't stay dead. The beauty is he rose again, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now God has exalted him to a position that's high above anything we can imagine. But the path for glory for Jesus Christ was marked by suffering. This is the hinge point, starting in eight, chapter 8 and through the end of the chapter. The rest of the book of Gospel of Mark is leading us to the cross. This first part, we get to see who he is, and now we're seeing what did Jesus come to do. Jesus is king of kings. He's mighty. He's great. All power and authority are his. We see that. But now what did he come to do? He came to go to the cross. And again, he'll tell his friends, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. And again, his friends don't get it. And they get into another conversation about what it means to be great and whose position is what. And again, Jesus will teach them, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. He said, stop thinking about people as what you use on the ladder and the road to success. People aren't here to serve you. You are here to serve others. And just like us, they're like, okay, Jesus, that makes sense, but what about right now? What about this problem we're facing in our world right now? What about the struggle that we are going through and where they're so caught up in right now what's happening right there? Jesus is giving them a new vision for life in the future. And it, it's as easy for us to miss as it was for them all these years ago because life is urgent right now, right? Life has immediate problems that need to be fixed and solved today, tomorrow. There are things that have to be done. Yes, Jesus, that's great. I love it. That's amazing. But what about this right here? I think I know what's best. I think I see everything exactly how it is. I think I understand what's going around on around me and in me. But Jesus is inviting us to trust him in a new kind of way. And here's what's so powerful. His vision for my life, for your life, is always going to be greater than anything that we could imagine. His vision for our family, it's always going to work out greater in a way that is beyond anything that we could understand. It's going to be terrifying, the whole process, but God is at work for good. And his heart for us, for you and I, for our struggle, for the urgency and the immediacy, it doesn't go unnoticed. It doesn't go unheard. Christ's heart towards us is tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing, and gentle. We can trust him, not just where we are today, but where we're going in the future, because he's proved himself faithful. He's shown that he can be counted on, that we can turn to him, we can follow him. Jesus' glory wasn't about power over or control over. It was through serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. We see in the Gospel of Mark a king treated like a criminal, the only one who got it all right in the end facing everything that was wrong. So that you and I, all of us who do get it wrong again and again and again, can know what it means to look right in the face of a loving and mighty king. 
But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this the Jesus Christ that we know? Is this the Christ that we talk about when we're talking about God and faith and church? Just like the disciples, it can be so easy for us to miss who Jesus is, to be blinded to the value and the beauty of what he shows us. And so as we study the Gospels together, I'm asking all of us, open our eyes and our hearts to our loving Jesus Christ. Stop thinking that you have to do this all on your own. Stop thinking you were created to grind yourself down, exhausted and weary. Stop seeing life as an enemy that needs to be beaten and wrestled into submission. And find your rest and joy, your purpose, your future in a loving friend and Savior who already fought the hardest fights that needed to be fought. He won so that you and I today can live with freedom and hope and joy. This is the Christ. If we let him, he will shape not just who we see him to be, but how we see our whole lives and our futures. And it begins with us saying, God, give me the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and a heart that fully understands just how loved and valued we are in Jesus Christ. And then let that be the Christ that you talk about, because we miss him. Our friends miss him. Our families miss him. And we don't see just how amazing he truly is. This Christ who is great, who became a servant, that you and I might know a life of goodness, greatness, and hope. Let him be the Christ that influences our heart and who we talk about with everyone that we know. Dear Father, I pray that you would help us. I recognize, like, just like the disciples, Father, we've missed Jesus Christ. We, we've gotten distracted and we've gotten in arguments over the wrong things that do nothing good for the quality of our hearts and our souls. But I pray, Father, that today we would hear the words of Jesus Christ, that the greatness you've called us to live out that's found in humility and service and compassion and kindness would take root in our hearts. I thank you for the service that Christ showed us when he gave his life for us. I thank you, Father, that you see us, that you know us, and you value us. I pray in our hunt to live a life that is truly great, you would challenge us, you would encourage us and strengthen us to be those who serve and live generously and compassionately. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.